Together we go through the reading from Psalm 22 responsively. Together we read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near me, and there is no one to help. Many bulls encircle me. Strong wolves of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs are all around me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. For ye, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. To him, indeed, shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord 
and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Let's be seated as Brielle reads for us the gospel. The reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 19. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne and uh, has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence with us. We'd ask now that your word would rule over us, your spirit would teach us, and your glory and nothing but your glory would be our chief concern. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is finished. The last word of Jesus In Greek, it's one word, tetaleste, a word written across a bill, totally paid, done, nothing left to pay. It is finished. A word in the perfect tense, finished and still finished, done, and nothing more needs to be done ever. It is finished. Through Lent, we've been deliberately working our way through the final 24 hours of Jesus' life, as told in the Gospel of John, allowing the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus from John 3 to be our lens. As Jesus says to him and to us, see me lifted up, see the hour of my glory, see the exaltation of the cross, that you may be born again, forgiven and made new by the power of the Spirit. And now, this Good Friday, this final moment, we look up and we see and we hear. We hear a final word. It is finished. What is finished? What is done? What is accomplished? That is what John wants us to see. As he's done throughout, John stops the narrative to locate this moment in place and time twice. He doesn't want us to miss the significance. It was the eve of Sabbath, the holiest of Sabbaths, the Sabbath of Passover, the day of preparation. And on the eve of Sabbath, every Jew would stop and prepare. And part of that preparation was to recite Genesis 2. And I quote, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested. On the cross, The eve of Sabbath, the holiest of Sabbaths, echoing what he would have said on the eve of every Sabbath for some 30 years, Jesus cries out a final word. It is finished. What is finished? What is done? What is accomplished? That is what John wants us to see. For if we see it, we will find rest, true rest, deep rest, eternal Sabbath. Rest. It is finished. What is finished? That is what John wants us to see. In the span of 14 verses, John abruptly stops four times to root the cross in the larger story that God is writing across time, across human history. This Happened to fulfill, he says. This was said to fulfill. This wasn't done to fulfill. 
All of the threads of Scripture find their end point here at the cross. All of the promises of God find their fulfillment here at the cross. And so we once more go to the cross to see what John wants us to see. And we open our eyes this Good Friday to a grotesqueness we rather would not have seen. A man, hardly recognizable as a man, bruised, bloody, beaten, publicly shamed and humiliated, displayed naked for all to see. But John directs our attention to the foot of the cross. There his executioners are bent over, dividing up the clothes they've just torn from his body. The outer garment they divide up into four, but the undergarment, seamless, valuable, unique. To tear it would be to destroy it, to diminish its value, and so instead they gamble for it. And John stops and roots this detail in the larger story. This was to fulfill the scripture, he says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22, a psalm of David, that as we read it together earlier, with all the details there in living color could have been written by an eyewitness to the crucifixion, but it wasn't. It was written a thousand years before. And the psalm ends with the words, He has done it. He's accomplished it. It is finished. The final word of Jesus. At that word, at that very moment, as Matthew tells us, the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. How are all these related Seamless garments gambled for, psalms recited, temple curtains torn. The presence of God was said to dwell in the Holy of Holies at the very center of the temple. But the temple had barriers everywhere, symbols that cried out, no access, no trespassing. The presence of God is barred to you. If you were a Gentile, you could close, but only so far. If a Jew, a little closer, but only so far. If a priest, a little closer, but only so far. And then came the final barrier, the temple curtain, walling off the Holy of Holies, 60 feet tall, as thick as a hand, separating all from the presence of God. Only the high priest, on one day a year, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, could enter. Knees knocking. He would have bells on his robes, a rope around his waist. So that if he did come before God without the right rituals, the right sacrifices, the right heart, and the presence of God consumed him, signified by the silence of the bells on his robes, the other priests could pull him out by way of the rope around his waist. The temple said no access. No matter who you are, what you've done, how good you are, the quality of your sacrifices, you don't have access to the presence of God. At the cross, the executioners gamble for Jesus' clothing. 
his seamless garment. Others had seamless garments, but only one person's garments were always seamless. The high priest. As they gamble, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, It is finished! And the temple curtain tears in two. The perfect high priest, Jesus, enters into the Holy of Holies, lays down his own life, and now the way to the presence of God that was once barred to all is open to all. It is finished. It is done, and nothing more needs to be done ever. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you rest in it? Or do you wonder, how could God love me when I've done, when I've said, when I've thought? Do your past wrongs still define you, still accuse you, still condemn you? Or do you reach for cover in in other ways? Well, I'm this way because of my parents, my upbringing. If they hadn't done, if they hadn't said, then I wouldn't be this way. A covering that never quite silences the inner murmur of self-reproach, self-condemnation. Do you say, well, well, these circumstances, it's God's way of punishing me. God's trying to teach me. No, no, no. It is finished. It is done. Nothing more needs to be done ever. Have you found your rest there? Rest in his love. Rest in his forgiveness. Rest in his presence. Rest in his finished work. It is finished. What is finished? That is what John wants us to see. After this, verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. Psalm 69, a psalm of suffering, of one suffering innocently, suffering what wasn't deserved, not because of his distance from God, but because of his closeness to God. God. One of the lines of the Psalms says, the reproaches of those who reproached you, God, have fallen upon me. The sufferer is experiencing what sin wants to do to God. And what does sin want to do to God? In his book, Confessions, Augustine tells a story of boyhood mischief. Apparently, there was a a pear orchard near his house full of fruit. And one stormy night, he and a group of friends got into the orchard, stole a whole bunch of pears, ran down to a neighboring field, and threw them away to a herd of pigs. Did they steal because they were hungry? No, they threw them away. Did they steal because they were better pears than they had elsewhere? No, he admits they had better ones at home. They stole, says Augustine, simply for the pleasure of doing what they were told not to do. Later in life, Augustine began to reflect on this instant. And he began to understand that underneath every transgression, every sin, is the ultimate motive to play God. 
We all have this deep desire within us to be in charge of our lives, to be in control, to do as we wish. We are the gods of our own lives, the captains of our own destiny, and every threat to self-determination and autonomy we desire to obliterate. And there's no greater threat to self-determination and autonomy than a God to whom we owe our very existence. I thirst. By quoting this psalm, Jesus is saying, I'm experiencing what sin wants to do to God. And what does sin want to do to God? We see the cross and we see it there. Silence him, tear him down, shame him, humiliate him, pulverize him. It is finished. What is finished? Our sinful nature is played out. We see it for what it is. We see the horror and loathsomeness of it and recoil. And then we see him there, loving us despite our enmity, praying for our forgiveness, dying to give us life. It is finished. It is done and nothing more needs to be done ever. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you rest in it? By faith, let your sinful nature die with Christ. Die to self. Die to the desire to be the own, your own Lord and master of your life. For it only leads to death. As Elizabeth Elliot puts it, whenever two wills cross, Somebody has to die. Life requires countless little deaths. Occasions where we're given the chance to say no to self and yes to God. But it's not a death merely to die. It's to die in order to live. Those who die with Christ will be raised with Christ. It is finished. What is finished? That is what John wants us to see. The Roman pattern of crucifixion was to display the bodies of the crucified for days, allowing the carrion to feed on them as a grotesque billboard, a message for all who would dare oppose Rome. But Jewish law would not allow the bodies to remain on the cross over Sabbath. So the Roman officials granted permission for the bodies to be buried. But for bodies to be buried, they must first be dead. And so to speed up death, they broke the legs of the crucified so that they could no longer push themselves up on the nails to catch their breath. Asphyxiation would follow. Two well-placed blows to shatter bones dispatched the criminals on either side. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. And John once more stops. This was to fulfill the scripture that says, not one of his bones would be broken. Exodus 12. The specifications given for the Passover lamb Passover, a celebration of freedom. But freedom from what? 
from Egyptian slavery? Well, yes, certainly that, but more central to the story as told in Exodus, it was freedom from false worship. As judgment came down on the gods of the Egyptians, setting them free to worship the true and living God, it is finished. What is finished? The cross is judgment upon all false gods, setting us free to worship the true and living God. Well, that's great, you might think. I didn't really need that. I'm a modern, sophisticated person. I don't need freedom from false gods and false worship. Really? We don't? David Foster Wallace was an award-winning novelist. A few years before the end of his life, he gave a now-famous commencement speech at Kenyon College. And Wallace was by no means a man of faith, but he said this to the graduating class. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. You worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start to show, you'll die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. you worship power. You'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much everything else will eat you alive. We're not free. We're enslaved to the false gods of Western culture. Beauty, self-determination, sex, money, power, consumption. Not one of his bones was broken. Jesus is the true Passover lamb winning for us freedom, freedom from false worship. It is finished. It is done. Nothing more needs to be done ever. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you rest in it? For when we look to the cross, we see the only one who is worthy of our worship. There, dying for us, loving us, forgiving us. And that kind of love sets us free. Free from the false worship that enslaves us and eats us alive. Setting us free to serve him, to worship him. For as the prayer book says, his service, his perfect freedom. It is finished. What is finished? That is what John wants us to see. Noticing he was already dead, one of the soldiers thrusts a spear into his side, and out comes blood and water. And John stops a final time. This was to fulfill the scripture that says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. 
Zechariah 12. As God says, I will pour out on them a spirit of grace so that they will look on me, God, whom they have pierced. And on that day a fountain will open to cleanse them from their sin and all uncleanness. All the way through the Gospel of John, water has been pointed to as that which gives life. Culminating in John 7, where Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And John adds, Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given. Why? Because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Here at the cross, Jesus is lifted up, glorified on an instrument of death, and a spear pierces his side, and out comes blood and water, living water. The spirit of grace to cleanse from all sin. It is finished. It is done. Nothing more needs to be done ever. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you rest in it? The glory and presence of God that was once barred to all is now open to all. The glory and presence of God that was once found on one place is now, by the work of the cross, taking up residence in us of all places. All of the barriers to the Spirit coming into us, remaking us, making new life flow into and out of us has been dealt with at the cross laying the groundwork for the power that raised Jesus from the dead to come into us and make us an entirely new creation. But that can wait till Sunday. It is finished. What is finished? That is what John wants us to see. It is finished. You are forgiven. It is finished. It is by dying to self that you find true life. It is finished. You are freed from false worship to worship the one whose love sets you free. It is finished. All of the barriers to the spirit taking up residence in you, making you new, has been dealt with. It is finished. It is done. Nothing more needs to be done ever. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you rest in it? It is finished. And he breathed his last. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services. 